13 of Rice Spear Radio. For anyone new to the show, we're a podcast that focuses on all things local government. I'm your host, Nathan Spear, the managing partner of Rice Spear, and we're a dedicated local government law firm helping councils solve problems all over New Zealand. Insurance is one of those things in local government that we get plenty of questions about. Things like, who is our insurer? What are we covered for? can and can't we say. And it can sometimes be a bit of a mysterious topic, but it really doesn't have to be. So in, in this episode, we decided to, to try and lift a bit of the mystery around insurance. And Helen Rice got to sit down with Paul Carpenter, who's been in the insurance industry as a broker for the last 25 years, originally with JLT. And after a huge merger in 2019, uh, a $5.6 billion acquisition, he's now with Marsh. In Paul's career, he's seen 13,000 claims notified by local government clients. Let's just reflect on that, 13,000 claims. And interestingly, of those claims, 70% come from councils carrying out their building control function. So I hope you enjoy this interview and don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast because it really does help us get the word out. And a final big thank you to our sponsor, as always, Maynard Marks. You can find more information at maynardmarks.co.nz. So without further ado, here's Helen and Paul direct from Wellington. Paul Carpenter to our Rice Spear podcast coming to you from Wellington City and can I say that it was a very smooth flight and um, thank you so much for chatting to me today Paul. For the last 25 years uh, you have been an insurance broker at Jardine Lloyd Thompson and more recently at Marsh following the purchase of JLT by Marsh in 2019. I was reflecting on a press release at the time which said Marsh and McLennan Companies, the name behind the brokerage giant Marsh, completed its $5.6 billion acquisition of Jardine Lloyd Thompson Group PLC on 1 April 2019 and will be remembered as the day that two brokerage juggernauts became one. Well, thanks, Helen, and uh, welcome to Wellington. <laughs> Please that it's not a windy day today. Um, initially, I, I thought, well, you know, this is going to be interesting. Uh, what um, became apparent to, to me was that the, the, the two groups were particularly complementary. Um, there wasn't a great deal of overlap in terms of the type of business that the, the, the companies did, and I think they integrated together um, particularly well. Um, the thing that um, I've appreciated is uh, the, the professional um, resource that um, is available to us, uh, both in terms of um, human capital and um, uh, you know, technology and, and all of those sorts of things. Um, from day to day, uh, what does it mean for me? Um, no great change apart from being part of a larger group. Cool. Hey, breaking news, Paul. When I was sitting in reception, I heard the receptionist on the telephone unfortunately cancelling your fruit order because of um, safety considerations. What are we in? You're in Wellington's now in level one. We're, we are, have just gone into 2.0, well, 2 actually, 2.0 at midnight. So bad news, 
Paul, there's going to be no fruit on Monday. Yeah, those four baskets of fruit are going to be missed. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, The bananas always go first. I did say to your receptionist, is it worthwhile coming to work on Monday? And she smiled and said, yes, because you have biscuits. Indeed. (laughs) Dentists will be pleased. Now, you uh, were born in Rotorua and studied law at Otago University, coincidentally about the same time as I was there as well. Indeed. So I know what it was like back in the day, but how was it for you at Otago University? Oh, look, you know, Otago was a great place to study. Um, coming from Rotorua and, um, you know, because of the high school that I attended, I was very science-orientated. And uh, it wasn't until I got to Otago that I discovered uh, law as, a, as an option. Um, the, the university itself, uh, being so far from home uh, and also being so... Um, um, Communal uh, community, if you like, um, it meant that we were all in the same uh, boat uh, as it was, uh, far from home, uh, and it meant that we were, um, you know, very collegial. Um, Dunedin was fantastic in its own right, but um, I was one of the few uh, students that had had a car back in the day, and um, our uh, a group of friends and I used to do road trips through Central Otago, through the Catlins, down into Southland, uh, round um, Fiordland. So it was it was fantastic, actually. I, I think back very fondly of my time there. Beautiful. I mean, that, the coast is absolutely gorgeous. And I, I, I too remember as a student going to the Catlins and coming across some horse races on the beach, a sausage sizzle. Uh, it was, yeah, a wonderful spot. Yeah, my only encounter down there was actually a sea lion. <laughs> Um, so tell me, Paul, from, from doing your law degree, how did you land at JLT as an insurance broker? It was really interesting. Um, I, I never really um, thought that um, a practicing law would be what I'd necessarily do, but I wanted to take um, the skills and mindset that um, you develop through studying law and apply it in a, in a commercial environment. Um, and a lot of it principles that you, you engage as a lawyer um, are very uh, relevant in, in, in a commercial uh, environment. So um, I actually started work at, at, at a broking house called Willis Carew mm-hmm. uh, and um, a few years later I was approached to join JLT and its it, um, uh, local government practice in its uh, infancy back in uh, 1995. Mm. And so, t- so what was it like local government back in 1995? Were they insured back then with NZI or was it HIH? Yeah, they were in the local market, uh, split largely between FAI and HIH. Um, neither, neither firm uh, trades these days. Um, it was a completely different environment uh, back then. Um, typically, uh, insurers would come in and out of the local government liability uh, space. Uh, they'd come in for the you know the, the premium, uh, but as the claims tail uh, catch kept caught up, um, normally about three years later, uh, they'd find that it was wasn't a profitable book of business and would exit, and someone else would come in. And it was at that time that uh, we thought that there, there would be a better way of doing it, and um, we eventually uh, established a mutual for local government. So you've been in this space for 25 years, am I right, as an insurance broker for local government? Yes, that's right. Wow, you must have seen a lot of claims in that. How, do, you have any, do you have any idea how many claims have passed through you? Yes. Um, in fact, just recently we clipped over 13,000 claims um, notified by our local government clients in the liability space. Um, of that, you know, about 10% are what I'd call hardcore uh, liability claims where there is uh, potential for a council to be uh, found uh, to have been negligent. Um, 
and of that, um, around about 50% uh, have some kind or some form of uh, litigation uh, underway. And there's probably quite a big percentage of those would have been what we now call leaky building claims. Back in the day, we used to call them building defect claims. But then when we saw the similarity between them, that they were all having weather-tight issues, we started calling them leakies. So am I right that of that 13,000, a decent chunk would have been leaky building claims? Yeah, I think, uh, if I can recall the numbers, um, there were, I think, about... 400 or thereabouts um, of those sorts of claims. The, the trouble with that is that um, insurance coverage has changed over the years, so it's a little bit hard to track the numbers. Right, because they, at some point the risk became excluded because it was a known risk. Known risk and the product of a systemic failure, which uh, insurers um, don't, don't like underwriting. They prefer um, what we call for, fortuitous loss rather than guaranteed loss. And so that's another reason why I say asbestos, like once it became known that asbestos was a thing in buildings, that became a known risk and was excluded. Yes, correct. So have you seen sort of other changes in the brokerage space for local government of risks that at the beginning they were insured and then as time travelled they became uninsured? It's really just limited to the weather tightness issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, In other areas, the losses tend to be uh, more fortuitous in their nature. Um, and you can actually point to a single thing that went wrong and identify that, that um, negligent act, error, or omission, as opposed to uh, weather tightness claims where the, um, the, 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 the losses caused by systemic failure with many failings uh, all, all converging to create a, a claim. So, wow, it, it, I'm fascinated by the variety of claims that you would have seen, and I can imagine there's some real milestones, or do we now call them kilometre stones? I don't know, kilometre stones for you over that period of time, is there, can you just tell me about some standouts? Yeah, it's been interesting. Uh, I think it's fair to say that the litigation environment for local government has has deteriorated, there's no doubt about that. Uh, And I think there are a number of reasons for that. I think the general public, uh, public's perception of uh, local authorities is that if something goes wrong in a council's territory, the, the council's up for it. I think that um, uh, plaintiff lawyers have become more sophisticated in advancing their, cl- uh, their claims. Uh, we now have obviously a body of case law, uh, good and bad, uh, for local government. And um, I think you know, even media, media coverage of the whole weather tightness issue uh, has caused um, property owners in particular to pay special attention to, to the proper property that they own. Um, in, the, in the same time, I think that uh, local government uh, has ageing infrastructure, um, and that, that inevitably does, can fail. Uh, natural disasters have revealed um, historical negligence uh, by councils. And if we take the Canterbury earthquakes and um, the uh, f- various floods that have occurred around the country, what those natural disasters do is lay bare years and years of potentially uh, historic ne- ne- negligence. So, I mean, out of Canterbury, for example, uh, we received um, around about 150 notifications of claims that weren't actually related to the earthquakes, but the earthquakes caused people to look very closely at their properties and, 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 and discover um, these defects. So, you know, the, the litigation environment has deteriorated, but there, there have been some um, high points. Um, our philosophy right at the outset was to always look for cases where, uh, or claims where there was an opportunity um, to improve the, 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 the case law for local government. 
And uh, one of the very first cases that uh, that I, uh, that I was uh, managing was a case called Atlas Properties and Capity Coast District Council. This involved um, the failure of a council asset. It was a, um, a culvert that was undersized, and the council knew that. Uh, and as a result, it flooded a large industrial a large industrial subdivision. Flooded. Um, <clears throat> the owners of those um, properties uh, sued the council. Uh, they sued initially under the Building Act and um, the uh, Resource Management Act, but the council had no knowledge of historical flooding. So that just left them with a negligence or, or nuisance claim in respect of the council's ownership of that culvert. Just a question, if it was an undersized culvert and they knew it was an undersized culvert, had they not had a history of flooding before this significant flood? No, it was a, it was a pretty major um, storm that, came, right. that went through. Okay. We looked at the council's <coughs> management of that asset and found that it was in fact um, scheduled in its um, asset renewal plan. It's just that the council hadn't reached that point in time where finance was available to do that. And that gave us confidence to run that case and the court agreed that um, yes, the council had actually um, acted reasonably and prudently in its ownership and or stewardship of, of that asset. It had in place a plan to upgrade it at some point in time, and that point in time just hadn't been reached. So I was quite encouraged by that, and we've had a couple of um, similar cases um, uh, after that, and I'm thinking of Eastern Agriculture and Horizons, where a, um, a, a flooding stock bank uh, partially collapsed and, and flooded some um, agricultural land. That was an interesting case uh, where the court actually found that the, the, the council, the regional council, had been negligent in its management of, of that asset, um, but the court held that the um, negligence was not causative of the loss. That is, that uh, the court found that the, the loss would have occurred anyway, so the council escaped a liability. So we've had some interesting cases around um, council, council asset ownership. But the other main areas um, uh, involve uh, council's building control responsibilities. Uh, the so just before we go into the building control responsibilities, I just want to stay with the flood because I'm kind of interested in I don't know if you caught the leaders' debate on Tuesday night uh, where our Prime Minister was debating against uh, Judith Collins. And for the first time in those leaders' debate, the two words were uttered, which were climate change. And I haven't seen that conversation happen at uh, you know the national level before and it intrigued me I was um, curious about it and as I listened to you speak about known risks that are excluded significant floods that have happened in the past of course we are getting so many more floods now with climate change is that excluded in local governments insurance policies or is that something likely to be excluded coming up soon? Too soon to say, uh, and it, it, you're right, it's interesting that um, this issue has, is, is now being mentioned at central government level. It's actually been uh, in sharp focus around local government for quite some time now, uh, particularly around um, the, the, the coastal, uh, mm. marine co- coastal environment. And um, to be fair, I think councils are dealing with that quite well. They are certainly acknowledging it in their district plans. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think of uh, places like... Um, Matata mm-hmm. uh, in the, in the yes. Bay of Plenty. Fakatane District Council. Correct. We're, we're, uh, they've recognised uh, the risk and they've uh, found that it's not a risk that can be managed, so they are um, essentially going through a managed retreat uh, process there. I think it's real, uh, and I think that local government is, is doing a good job of uh, dealing with it. 
So I interrupted you, sorry, Paul, because you were about to uh, tell us about another bucket of cases, which are um, building control uh, cases and litigation that's developed and under your watch as broker through the last couple of decades. Yeah, in terms of liability claims, uh, building defect claims or building claims arising out of council um, building control functions probably make up around about 70% mm-hmm. of cases by uh, number and probably value too. Um, when I first became involved in local government liability, there wasn't much of a body of case law. Um, I think we had Hamlin and Invercargill City Council and maybe one or two others involved. We, in I think we had Mount Albert Borough Council and Johnson. That's right. 19, was it 1984? <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> I, I think I remember studying that at university. Um, <clears throat> so we, we t- approached uh, the, the, the claims with um, the philosophy of um, being prepared to actually run ones uh, to trial where we, where we thought there was an opportunity to create some good case law uh, for local government. <clears throat> One of the very first ones um, <clears throat> that I ever saw was a case called Number 3 Mead Street in Rotorua District Council and that involved a motel with numerous defects including weathertight as it turns out but plenty of other defects too. Um, when we were looking at that case it became apparent to us that the, the, the um, commissioning owner of that um, property was not your typical Hamlin mum and dad um, property owner. They were actually reasonably sophisticated commercial property owners. And so a, an argument was developed that um, council should not owe a duty of care to uh, commercial property owners or non-residential property owners simply because that class of owner can actually otherwise protect their interests. Um, they can do that through building warranties, uh, they can engage a clerk of works and uh, all of that sort of thing. Uh, in this case, um, the owner did not do any of that, and when things didn't go right, sought to seek an indemnity from the council's ratepayers. The court gravitated towards that argument and uh, actually found it an attractive one and held that um, councils do not owe a duty of care to non-residential property owners. And we were able to repeat that in a few other cases. Uh, subsequent, uh, subsequently, uh, there was um, Tomato Properties and Hastings District Council involving a motel, and Charter All Trustees in Queenstown Lakes District Council uh, involving a uh, luxury lodge uh, down in Queenstown that had a, a reasonably significant chimney fire. That um, principle uh, was ultimately uh, overturned by the Supreme Court uh, in a um, Auckland case, but even still we managed to hold on to that, um, that precedent for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I think that it saved local government uh, quite a lot of uh, saved local government from uh, quite a large exposure of uh, building defect claims in that category. Mm. Yeah, that was very strategic um, and intentional, and um, the development of that case law. You know, I agree with you because, in fact, I've been involved in local government cases for you know as long as you have, and worked with you side by side on some of these this litigation. Um, and it has been really interesting to see the development of, of it through the courts to the benefit of local government. Um, pendulum swung, of course, with the Supreme Court deciding, in fact, that the councils did owe a duty of care to commercial and residential owners. Yes, and it's unfortunate that decision came out right before um, the trial in the Southland uh, Stadium roof collapse. Um, interestingly, we had incurred that claim uh, well um, during the, the, the tenure of that, um, that uh, no duty uh, being held. And uh, after the Supreme Court overturned it, of course, the, uh, the owners of that um, stadium uh, commenced proceedings and 
interestingly, it demonstrates perhaps uh, some of the issues that we do have uh, for, with local government and the litigation environment. And to explain that, um, you know, the council had a complete loss in the High Court for uh, all up, it was about $18 million. Uh, on appeal, had a complete win in the Court of Appeal, complete reversal. And then, of course, in the Supreme Court, it was essentially split down the middle 50 50. Um, so that makes it quite hard for underwriters to, to get a sense of what the, um, the litigation risk is in New Zealand, which in turn makes it, uh, the risk quite hard for them to underwrite. Southland Stadium was extraordinary that nobody was um, injured or killed, can I say? I mean, that roof collapse was a catastrophic event. Yeah, that, that was pretty remarkable. I think. In all my time, though, the highlight of that particular case was, was, was a quite a fortuitous one, and that was that uh, the insurers paid the High Court judgment prior to Brexit. Um, by the time of the um, uh, Court of Appeal decision uh, coming out, of course, Brexit had occurred and the exchange rate had moved um, significantly. And by my calculation, the underwriters um, made a um, um, foreign exchange gain of about $2 million on right. that claim. So that was by the time the Supreme Court decision had come out? Yeah. Between, no, between the High Court and the Court of Appeal. Oh, right. Yeah. That much. Whew. As the underwriters in London said to me, we've, we've never seen a liability claim do something like that before. <laughs> that is a good day at the office. Silver lining. What about some other cases, Paul? Just learn one or two other yeah. little tasty numbers for us to share with our audience. One that really stands out for me and has, re- has actually withstood the test of time and that's borne out by um, the claims experience that we're seeing is a case called Bella Vista and uh, Western Bay of Plenty District Council. Just Not re- to be confused with Bella Vista, which is Tauranga City Council failed subdivision. Oh, absolutely. Two, just two, to be different, clear. Yeah, two, two different cases altogether. Um, This is an interesting one because um, the council had granted a resource consent for a um, convention centre on a non-notified basis and um, I don't quite know what happened but uh, um, the the, um, subsequent purchases of that um, uh, convention centre carried on operating. They must have done something to perhaps upset the neighbours, I don't quite know. Um, But the neighbours got together and judicially reviewed that consent in the Environment Court and uh, it was held that the consent was uh, wrongly issued. Uh, we looked at that and thought, well, that's going to be interesting. I'm sure that there's going to be a damages claim for the economic loss. And sure enough, uh, that followed. Looking at it, we, we thought, well, you, you know, our backs are slightly uh, to the wall, but we decided to um, actually defend that case. And we defended on the basis that the Resource Management Act is all about the sustainable management of the environment. And it's not about protecting the economic interests of those who might rely on a a council consent. And the court agreed. And to me, that makes a lot of sense because, um, you know, when you you put the responsibility on a council to administer the Resource Management Act, you don't want them clouding their uh, thinking by potential negligence claims and therefore potentially not giving effect to the, um, the, the purpose of the Act. So it was an interesting outcome, and it'd be fair to say that uh, I can't think of any uh, cases since involving non-notified resource consents that have run the distance uh, before the courts. Mm, another proud moment. Yeah, I was, I, I, I was, I was, pleasantly, um, I was very, very pleased with that outcome. Faith in the court system. Uh, I, I remember one case, and this is going back quite some time ago, 
uh, that involved oysters. (laughs) (laughs) This was one of our earlier claims. Oh, I don't know. I kind of struggle if I'm, you know, if I'm lucky enough to be offered an oyster or go out and get an oyster. I do think twice now after that case. Yeah, look, it was interesting. Um, This was a case uh, involving the Far North District Council uh, where there were oyster farmers who had uh, stilts um, in the tidal uh, zone of, of, of the Opua Harbour. Um, what actually happened there was there was a norovirus uh, infection and the um, health authorities closed the oyster farmers down. These guys apparently were producing about a third of New Zealand's e- export crop um, and it, it was quite a large claim they were bringing, if I recall correctly, it was about, about $12 million. Um, and that was quite some time ago, that was probably about... 15 years ago? Yeah, early 2000s. Yeah, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, if, if I'm thinking... Yes, that sounds right. That's yeah. a lot of money back then, and it, it is today. It was a lot of money, uh, and it was a novel claim, to be fair. Uh, and the reason why it was novel is that they were alleging um, nuisance. Now, in that part of the Opua Harbour, there were properties with septic tanks. Uh, there were cruise ships who, I didn't know it, but they can actually bilge. Uh, once they're a certain distance off the coastline. Um, and, and of course, there was the council's um, sewage treatment plant. Um, that was a plant the council had inherited from a predecessor, and it was in pretty poor shape. And whenever a, a, a storm would come through, it would um, occasionally discharge into the harbour. Now, the problem that we had with it is that the uh, law at the time was that in these sorts of cases where you have you know, a number of potential sources of, of pollution, um, a plaintiff doesn't have to demonstrate that uh, you actually caused the pollution. All they have to do is demonstrate that you increase the risk of pollution. And the council was a prime target for that. You know, the, the sewage treatment plant was, was pretty obvious. But of course, as I said, there were, there were other potential co- um, causes of contamination. What that meant was that uh, we had to demonstrate that the council could not, the council's water could not have made it to these um, to the, the, the oyster farms. And on a, uh, a site visit up there uh, with um, um, what do you call them? Hydrologists. Yes. Uh, we, we, we were driving by and um, noticed a um, fruit stand on the side of the road with an honesty box. And there was some discussion amongst um, our experts as to whether oranges would uh, float. And <laughs> as a result, we, we, we bought a $5 bag of oranges and sat there um, uh, sticking GPS plots into them. And then we tossed them into, in, into, into the water. And what these were able to demonstrate, as we had um, hoped, was that uh, water from the sewage treatment plant simply could not have made its way to these oyster farms. And that therefore um, uh, took the council out of the um, potential uh, contaminators, and uh, we won the case. Wow, Kiwi ingenuity at its best. It's a bit of number eight why, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks for sharing that story, Paul. Really, um, really impressive portfolio of claims that you have um, managed and been across. Um, any last one just to wrap it up? I'm, I'm, I thought Monticello was an interesting case. Yeah, if you well, want to share about that. <laughs> <laughs> that, that involves uh, land information memoranda, which is probably the, um, the other main category of claim that we see mm. from time to time. Um, was that Selwyn District Council from memory? Yes, Selwyn District. Yes. Yeah. 
interesting case. Um, funnily enough, the, the land that was being purchased uh, was actually uh, former council land. It was actually owned by a predecessor council um, from back in the 1950s or 60s or thereabouts. Monticello was a joint venture uh, looking to develop uh, land and purchased uh, this block of land and applied for a land information memoranda and uh, the, uh, the LIM did not record any particular special features. It turns out that the land was actually a former council rubbish tip. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a little bit of concern as to, as to whether the council would be liable for the, for the um, decontamination costs there. Um, as it turns out, the council did hold some information but, about the previous use of the land, but it was um, stored off in archives. And what the court held there was that um, the councils, uh, whilst they have a duty to disclose in a limb uh, information they possess, they're not required to go on an exhaustive search for information. And uh, in that case, uh, the council successfully defended the claim. Mm, great. Good result. And, of course, many of these cases go to mediation. So, you know, you've obviously... Councils have been strategic in terms of which cases they've taken to trial and had some good successes. So if you had a crystal ball, Paul, I mean, you've, you've now you've worked in this area of local government for 25 years, so if we were to jump forward from 2020 to 2045, what do you think some of the hot topics, trends, problem areas for local government might be in terms of litigation? Well, I still think... Where's the next big curve coming from, the next wave? I, I think climate change is going to be... Um, one of the drivers of, of, of claims, um, particularly in respect of damage to um, property in the um, coastal marine uh, environment. Um, however, that's not going to be a sudden thing, and, and I think that mm. councils are actually mitigating now the risk of those potential claims through through you know their district plans and regional plans. Um, but otherwise, I think that uh, building building defect claims are still going to be there. Um, human nature tells me that um, there will always be negligence around construction. Look, I think I, I agree with you on that, Paul. I mean, on the plane, I was looking at a new claim against Christchurch City Council where a um, residential home was rebuilt after the earthquake and it has failed. So there's allegedly crappy soil, so geotechnical expert evidence to say that the house ought not to have been um, designed the piling system. And, and as I read through the statement the claim in the High Court on the plane, I thought to myself, why on earth did the council drop the ball in this case? Because the council received a PS1 producer statement design with a really comprehensive geotech report, a PS4, again from the geotech engineer, beautiful inspection records attached to it, um, and, you know, and signed off, properly completed. So, you know, I, I agree with you that there's going to be more building defect claims coming down the line. However, as councils improve their practices, do you, like me, have hope that it won't be the councils that are left carrying the can, but appropriately it's the parties who are pri providing the certification when they ought not to, and the construction parties? Yeah, look, one of the biggest concerns I have uh, for local government is um, their reliance upon producer statements um, provided by uh, other professionals within the building uh, in industry. Um, 
you'll recall, you know, the 1991 Building Act contemplated producer statements as a means by which um, councils can uh, have a, a reasonable belief that the, um, the, the building complies with the code. Of course, the um, 2004 Act uh, doesn't contemplate producer statements. Uh, that concerns me a bit, uh, but I do take some comfort from the fact that uh, MB produced some guidelines around producer statements back in 2013. So at least there's some governmental acknowledgement of these things being relied upon in, in the course of construction. The problem with it, as we've seen in a number of cases now, is that councils do not necessarily possess internal expertise to second-guess um, the content of producer statements. And the question is, is it now still um, reasonable for councils to rely on them? And what, 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 what further inquiry should a council make before they actually uh, act in, in reliance upon them? Um, you know, and, and the other problem with it too is that councils don't actually engage the experts producing these statements. Uh, they're, they're, they're engaged by the commissioning owner or the building owner. And a product of that is that um, councils have neither contractual control nor quality control over, over the work being done. Um, yet they're expected to rely upon these things and uh, take, take, take action uh, under, under the Building Act. Um, so without that um, ability to control that risk, the councils leave themselves exposed to concurrent uh, liability uh, to a plaintiff. And one of the problems with that, as we've seen time and time again, is that that um, building um, uh, industry expert or whatever uh, either is uninsured or is underinsured for the for the risk that they're, um, they're facing. And, you know, I've seen cases where an engineer responsible for a multi-million dollar loss uh, only had a million dollars worth of insurance, and by the time uh, we ended up in mediation, that uh, insurance had been um, reduced by by the uh, costs incurred. And at the end of the day, I think there was only about $200,000 left uh, to contribute to what was a multi-million dollar claim. And of course, sitting in a mediation, all eyes then fix on the council with the expectation that you just top up the claim to make it go away. So it makes it very difficult for us. And it's, it's an area that um, we are really encouraging councils to give some hard thought to. I've seen some um, rather good um, policy around the acceptance and uh, management of producer statements from whom, um, you know, um, managing uh, registers of those uh, from whom councils will, will accept them and uh, that sort of thing. So I think it's the next big issue for councils, um, principally because it's very hard for them uh, to control the risk or manage the risk, yet um, they remain exposed to the consequences of that risk. I think that's right, and I think there's such a good summary of the past the present and the prediction of the future in this space. The courts have been quite clear that it's not simply a question of collecting pieces of paper. The council must scrutinise those pieces of paper and they must have um, you know, a reasonable system against which they are deciding on reasonable grounds to issue the building consent or the co-compliance certificate. So they do need to um, carefully review them. Yeah, I think the days of simply receiving them and filing them are, yes. are long gone. And yes. uh, I think that they require a level of care now, particularly as we're seeing uh, now the types of building, um, we, the building defects uh, where uh, producer statements have been relied upon typically involve quite complex and large building structures. Um, and, they, and, and they're involving, involving defects uh, where councils would have absolutely no expertise, whether it's a 
uh, cool store refrigeration system, uh, whether it's a uh, fire suppression system in a supermarket, you know, all those sorts of things where a council um, probably won't have its own expertise, yet, yet will be uh, exposed to a liability when they do rely on the experts. And can minimise that liability or perhaps, Helen says optimistically, extinguish altogether if the paperwork is robust uh, and the council did have reasonable grounds to accept it. Correct. And I mean, a council will only be faulted for, in my view at least, for accepting something uh, that, you know, it just simply wasn't reasonable for them to do Mm. so. And having good systems and procedures you know, possibly peer review uh, is, is, is a big step towards uh, acting reasonably and prudently in the circumstances. Mm. Well, look, Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you today, and we could just go on. I, I think I'll wrap with just with some uh, lighter questions in uh, this space, which is outside your successful, productive, and impressive local government career as a broker, um, what are your interests? Well, um, obviously pre-COVID, um, I'm, a, I'm a huge um, fan of travel. Um, I, I really do think that um, you know, getting to experience um, different parts of the world, different cultures, different people, um, rounds you off as a person. But I'll tell you what, it actually really makes you appreciate um, New Zealand mm. coming home. Um, well, there's a lot of appreciating New Zealand right now, and there could be for the next 12 to 18 months. <laughs> you, you, you may not have um, sensed this, but I still get the feeling that we're in a, in a global lockdown um, not being able to travel, but um, no, no that, that's mine. Um, apart from that, I, I, I've always been a keen uh, yachty. Um, I've, I've uh, something I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed, and I've got have a group of friends. Uh, we get together every now and then and charter a yacht and sail in some part of the world. Um, it's great fun. And I also know because I've known you for some time that you particularly like petrol. Oh yes, anything <laughs> anything with a motor, I find fascinating. Huge. Remember your Ducati that you got <laughs> years ago. Yeah, that, that was a um, midlife crisis. I think <laughs> I've since sold it, so I'm obviously past that midlife crisis. <laughs> well, if I was um, to ask you as a final wrap, who would you invite to dinner? Who would be your favourite dinner guests? Well, that's a really good question, um, John Clark. If a person can make quantitative Fred Dag. If, if, if someone can make quantitative easing funny, you can be sure that the, the evening's going to be entertaining. What a fantastic note to end on. Thank you so much, Paul Carpenter. You have been a pleasure to chat to today. Thank you.